11 to 22. So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision, by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is the third sermon in a series of messages called One, Finding Harmony in an Age of Hostility. And we're walking through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. And there's that big idea that, that, uh, that God in Christ is reconciling all things to himself and the implications that that has for our everyday lives and community and uh, in our workplaces and in our families. When you think about the first part of Ephesians, it's, it's almost like a formula. Uh, you were, he's like, you were once dead, but in Christ now you are alive. You were once impure, but you have now been made holy. You were once in darkness, you have now been brought into the light. You were once far away, far off, but now you have been made, been brought near. And there are two parts to the book of Ephesians. The first part, the first three chapters is, is, about, um, is about finding peace or wholeness or, 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 or unity. And the second part is about keeping peace or wholeness or unity. And so if someone were to say, I think, um, if you could say in one word, well, why does Jesus matter today, not just after after we die, but why does Jesus matter today? What difference does he make? In one word, that word would be peace. Jesus offers peace. In, in Hebrew, the word is shalom. In Greek, it's erene. He offers peace with, um, with ourselves, peace with one another, peace with the natural world, and peace with God. Of course, that doesn't mean that everyone who claims to be a Christian has this peace, but this is what Jesus himself offers. 
In our passage today, uh, Paul demonstrates this when he says, he is our peace, which to me indicates that this is a lifelong journey. Like when we find ourselves close with God and uh, close to Christ, um, there's, there's a vision, there's a frame, an interpretation for our experience. And when we find ourselves far away from Christ or distracted, we find ourselves anxious. And so the closer when we find ourselves living in the realm of Christ's love, he gives us peace. He goes on to say, Paul says, he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups, that's the Gentiles and the Jews, both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. And now we're starting to get into some of the implications of this message for our lives. You don't have to go very far to, uh, to, to discover walls of hostility that divide people. Unfortunately, conflict is one of the most ordinary spaces in which we live as human beings. This past fall, I had the opportunity to visit the Berlin Wall for the first time. Um, in 1989, I was 10 years old when the, when the Berlin Wall came down, and so I don't remember it. This was a, it was a meaningful experience um, for me, and profound because of this text. Anytime I look at a dividing wall in the real world, I'm reminded of this text. It lives in me. Um, I spoke with a, a local there who had been sort of trapped on the other side of the wall in East Berlin um, prior to it coming down, and he could not tell the story. He could not talk to me about it without, uh, without weeping because to him, it wasn't just a media event. The coming down of the Berlin Wall meant the coming together, the reconciling of families, uh, pe people being brought back together, neighborhoods being brought back together, um, one nation, one community. Here are a few images of, of, uh, of, of when this wall came down back from 1989. I obviously didn't take these images. Um, and you can sense the hostility. You can sense the hostility as, and the sort of release, perhaps, of so much pent-up um, frustration. It's powerful when you see these images and when you go to a, a place like this and you see how dividing walls affect people and groups of people. Their cries for justice and liberty. And you realize that this, that this wall, um, it was totally unnecessary. This wall wasn't keeping anybody safe. It, it wasn't a healthy boundary marker. It was a wall of hostility that finally melted in light of the truth. Of course, we experience hostility and dividing walls, not only um, between nations at an international level or even at a national level between people groups, but we also experience this hostility in the back seat of the minivan. And you think about our precious little children and sometimes they like to draw a little line around their bucket seat and they say, don't cross this line. Mom, she's touching me. We, we know all about dividing walls. It's part of what it means to be human. We, we want our space. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter from prison. And it's important to note this fact because uh, because. Paul going to prison is directly tied to our topic. Um, he was in trouble because he was accused of breaching a wall. 
The temple that sat at the heart of Jerusalem, you might remember this, was a series of walled-in courtyards. You can see on this image on the far left, of course, is the holy place, the holy of holies, and only the great high priest once a year was allowed to enter into that place, and that place was divided with a curtain um, in the holy of holies. And then outside of there was the, um, the, the priestly court, and only the priests of Israel were allowed in, into the temple. Um, the next courtyard was the court of Israel, which meant that only male Jews could enter into uh, the court of Israel. And then there's the court of women, which meant that Jewish women could enter into that court on the right. Then outside of that was the court of the Gentiles. And so only the Gentiles were, um, were not allowed to go in. They had to stay on the outside. Um, if, if you were not a Jew, you were not welcome here. And this temple construction, the whole purpose, it was a design to try to protect the holiness of God from the unclean world. Here's an image of part of the wall that was um, uncovered by archaeologists from the first century, and it has an inscription in Greek which essentially reads, uh, if you're a Gentile and you cross this point, if you breach this wall and go where you're not supposed to go, you will be killed. This is what Paul was dealing with. He had been traipsing around the Mediterranean world Um, bringing together two very different groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. They often despised one another, and he brought them together under the love of Jesus Christ. And he went around the Mediterranean Rim doing this all over the place, and he even brought some of these Gentiles back with him into Jerusalem, the horror, you can imagine. Um, And what happens is, is that he was then accused of bringing one of these Gentiles, Titus, into the court of Israel past that wall that he wasn't supposed to. We don't know if Paul actually did this, but allegedly he was accused of doing this, and that's why they wanted to kill him. And so I take this time to kind of map this out because when Paul speaks about a wall of hostility, he's not just talking in the abstract. He's talking about this physical representation of division and exclusion of people from the community of God's people. Then when he, when he goes to Ephesus, Paul went to Ephesus to nurture along this church long before he wrote this letter, he would have seen the temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He couldn't miss it. But as a Jew, Paul wasn't even allowed inside that grand structure. We know there were also temples to the mystery cults, the pagan mystery cults, where worshipers participated in the dramatic life of heroic figures seeking to draw strength from those folks. But Paul wasn't allowed in those either, in those temples, which I don't think would have bothered him because he would have never really wanted the church to be confused with the mystery cult anyway. But so as he typically did in a new city, when he went there, they started to meet in the synagogue. And he had Jews and Gentiles meeting, worshiping Christ in the synagogue. And that went pretty well for about three months. And then they got kicked out. He got kicked out of the synagogue because, you know, uh, we prefer dividing walls. And so then he ended up in a lecture hall. And for the next two years in Ephesus, Jews and Greeks gathered together together. In a, in a lecture hall to hear the word 
of the Lord. And so the church wasn't meeting in the great temple of Artemis or the temple of the mystery cults because the Jews among them weren't allowed in those buildings. And the church wasn't meeting in the synagogue because the Greeks among them weren't allowed to meet in there. So they're not in the temple, they're not in the synagogue. It's no surprise then that Paul begins this letter by saying that you are in Christ. You're in Christ. The call to live in Christ is the theme of the first chapter of Ephesians. And then in the second chapter, Paul expands on that further. He claims that in Christ, the Jews and the Greeks have all been made members of the one household of God. In Christ, the church has become the dwelling place. The people of God has become the dwelling place. And in Christ, there are no dividing walls that separate people and create strangers. The primary image that Paul uses here to describe Jesus in this structure is as a cornerstone. He says, um, essentially, uh, built upon the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Luke uses the same image in Acts when he says, um, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that this man who was just healed before you in good health by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the, build, by the builders, you. It's become the cornerstone. Do you know about a cornerstone? Have you ever seen a building with a cornerstone on it? In modern architecture, um, cornerstones have very little um, uh, usefulness in, uh, in a building. In the old world, a cornerstone actually held the building up. In the modern world, we use a cornerstone to put a plaque on it or to etch something ceremonial. But this is what it looked like in the ancient world. It actually held the building up. I think the modern equivalent would be a load-bearing wall. Um, we all know about load-bearing walls. I don't know anything about construction, but I know something about a load-bearing wall. These are the walls necessary to hold up the roof and keep the structure from falling in. The problem with a load-bearing wall is that anytime you want to do a little remodeling, it's that wall that is the problem. The contractor says, sorry, you can't take that wall down. You're stuck with it. And so, load-bearing walls are inevitably dividing walls. And what Paul is saying is that the church in Jesus Christ is a rather unique structure. It doesn't have any dividing walls. Jesus Christ alone bears the load for the entire structure of the house. And he's broken down all the dividing walls. So that means that if we put up a dividing, put up walls in the church, which we tend to do sometimes in order to make ourselves feel more comfortable so we don't have to deal with people who are different from us, those are just soffits. They can come down any time we're ready to turn away from the practice of dividing the body of Christ. These are the walls that separate the races, the political parties, economic classes, theological progressives from traditionals, righteous from sinners. But those walls don't hold up the church of Jesus. They're just soffits. Religious groups don't intend to create walls. 
or strangers, I should say. We don't intend to create strangers, but we do this whenever we're so preoccupied with our purity that we fear the impurities of outsiders are going to rub off on us or might uh, erode the integrity of the house. Maybe it was the intent of all these walls to guard holiness, to guard the holiness of God in the temple, but the result is that it only created strangers. Jews were strangers to the worship of Greeks. Greeks were strangers to the worship conducted by Jews. And everyone was a stranger to the holiness of God. In the death of Jesus Christ, the veil that guarded the holiness of God was torn into two not only allowing access in, but allowing the love of God to spill out into all of the world. So the last thing the church would want to do then is to try to wall off or protect the holiness of God. It's impossible for one thing because we don't control the holiness of God. Uh, God's holiness, he is free. And instead, what we do when we try to do this is we also create strangers. Paul goes on to say, in him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple. Now he's kind of mixing his metaphors. I don't know how a house grows into a temple. But nonetheless, the body of Christ is the dwelling place, the temple for God. This means that the church isn't holy because of its members, it's certainly not holy because of its clergy. No, the church is only holy in Christ who loves to include outsiders. We live in a society that has always been anxious about strangers, but the stranger that we worry about the most is the one that we see when we look in the mirror. Most of us find it hard to live a perfectly integrated life but we label parts of ourselves as profane or unholy, and then we build a dividing wall in our hearts. For some, the wall separates work from church. For others, the wall separates faith from politics. For others, it separates family from individuality. For others, it's, it separates the person I know myself to be from the person others expect me to be. And we think that with these interior walls, we can contain this profane stranger within us and protect the part of us that is holy. We will just avoid the bad neighborhood parts of our lives. But until we allow Jesus Christ to break down the dividing walls in our own hearts, we're not going to be able to do any good bringing reconciliation and peace and participating in Christ's holy business of reconciliation on earth. Instead, what we do is we just continue to externalize those parts of us that we deem unholy and profane. So for the sake of the divided world around us, we have to learn to call Jesus Christ the Savior of all of our lives, over the whole of our life. 
This is why in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus and to us is this constant invitation to live in Christ, in Christ. We have a hard time understanding this phrase, living in Christ, because we've been nurtured in individualistic values for so long. We consider it a right, if not a responsibility, to live our own lives. But in ancient society, people often attempted to live the life of someone who had gone before them. This is what the Greeks were doing with the mystery cults, um, worshiping these heroic figures who they sought to draw strength from. It's what the Jews did when they told the ancient stories of the patriarchs and the kings and the prophets. They were living vicariously. And so when when uh, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they say, well, some say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. They knew that these prophets were dead, but they're wondering if Jesus might be um, practicing the old way of living in one of their great lives and following their way, leading their way. So Paul is, is appealing to this common religious agenda by calling us to live in Christ. But as he repeatedly reminds us, we, we don't do this by trying harder to imitate him. No, the Holy Spirit wants to engraft us into his identity. In other words, your life has already been lived. Your decisions have already been made. Your morality has already been determined. And best of all, your identity has already been established. You're no longer stranger or alien, Jew or Gentile. You're now a member of the household of God. And so the Holy Spirit has adopted you into the Son's relationship with the Father, right? So when I say He's adopted you into the Son's relationship with the Father, you take on the identity of Jesus. And so now the God who calls Jesus the beloved says the same thing to you. You are the beloved. You're no longer the things you were called when you were a child, the smart one or the not-so-smart one or the pretty one or the not-so-pretty one or the athletic one or the non-athletic one. You are so much more than all of those things. You're the beloved of God. And, and so he loves all of you, not just the good parts, the whole, the whole of it. And that's because he's embraced and redeemed all of it. And so with the apostle, you can say it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And when we get confused or anxious along the way, the call is to look at the life of Jesus Christ. The story of your life has already been written in his life. And if you're in need about clarity in your mission, in Christ it becomes clear that you've received the calling to break down dividing walls that create strangers. Some of those walls divide our own hearts. Others divide families and relatives. Others divide your office, your city, your world. It's not an optional calling for the person who is living in Christ. To live in Christ means to accept this responsibility and this sacred mission. And the hardest part of fulfilling this mission, I think, is that it means that we have to leave home in order to do it. We have to leave the old house in order to enter into the household of God. And I don't mean that literally. I, I mean the familiar places of comfortability and familiarity and identity. The reason home is comfortable is because we've put familiar walls around it. 
And like Christ, we have to leave home in order to enter into the household of God. Some of us have to leave uh, the familiar words we heard as a child, as I mentioned. Others have to step away from the political home that we knew in order to transcend party platforms with a new vision. Still others have to step away from vocational homes where you've allowed yourself to be defined by your work. No, you are only defined by the work of Jesus Christ. All of us have to step away from the homes of familiarity and similarity. We will never be in the household of God and ever be at home and comfortable with people who look just like us. Because in the Heavenly Father's home, it's filled with all kinds of different people. And when different kinds of people come together in the name of Jesus Christ, the glory of God shines on the world. That's what Pentecost looked like. For he is our peace, and he has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. And we embody this every time we come to this table. We say yes to Jesus. Yes, Jesus, we recognize that you are no respecter of persons. All who know of their need for God are welcome to this table. This table does not care how much money you have, what your race is, your gender, your sexuality. It doesn't care about your political views. It cares about whether or not you recognize your need for God. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you Thank you that in Jesus Christ you have broken down dividing walls of hostility. We live in a world of, of great hostility. And so these words just cut through the ages right into our modern world. Remind us that whatever walls we see are part of a world that is passing away. That there are no walls in your house. Help us to live in the grace and the love and the unity that comes with knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. In whose name we pray, amen.